Hello and welcome to the Mind Your Leadership Podcast. I'm Karen Sook and today I will speak with Dr. Robin Rosenberg. Robin is the CEO and founder of Live in the World. She's a clinical psychologist and an author. She was the head author of a study to investigate using VR for good. Over the years, she has combined her interest in immersive technologies with her coaching and clinical experience to foster a deeper understanding of empathy in the workplace. In this episode, we will talk about how to create workplaces with more empathy and how to increase diversity, equality, and inclusion in the workplace. So stay with us. Robin, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, Karen. Yeah, me too. I want to know how you got your interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I know it's a big theme that you're promoting in the workplace, in the business world. So I'm happy to hear your story, your path. Thanks for asking. Um, I, I've been interested in a while. I went, in graduate school, I was in a program <clears throat> that really focused on um, the person in context or in community. I'm a psychologist, clinical psychologist. And so that, that was always there in the background. And there were some uh, psychologists who were re- early researchers in, in the re- issue around diversity and equity, psychological underpinnings of it. But uh, what happened is I got interested in VR, virtual reality. That's a long story, a longer story. Happy to, to tell you that. But while I was doing research on VR in the U.S., uh, Trayvon Martin was killed. And uh, George Martin, who murdered him, had, was acquitted. Mm-hmm. And that actually led to uh, Black Lives Matter becoming a sort of more known thing. And then that led some white people to say either all lives matter or white lives matter. And not that I presume to know the lived experience of being black in the US, but I thought I knew enough to hypothesize that, you know, this was a profound failure of understanding experience and that we could use virtual reality to really help people understand more deeply black lives matter really meant and what to do, how people could be allies and be, be helpful. So that was the idea. So it's really, now I'm really curious about the virtual reality. How do you use it? I know that you are the CEO and founder of Live in the World. So Correct. I'd be happy to learn about it more. What does it mean? And how do you use these tools, technology? So Live in the World is a company. We have a subscription as a service program that uses theme-based tracks So for example, a black man track, right? Or sexual harassment prevention track to help people both understand and what we call emotional learning about the experience to motivate people to then do the work to change their behavior in the Mm -hmm. work. And we, so we want to both educate people in an emotional way so that they're, they really get it and also upskill people for, well, okay, now what do I do? What should I be doing differently? Mm-hmm. So we also 
do leadership training and uh, executive coaching and DEI focused coaching. But the VR was developed to be with our subscription as a service program to really help people literally be in scene after scene from the perspective of, you know, whatever it is, for instance, a black man, of just the ways that bias um, plays out in behavior. Can you give me an example for one of the scenarios? That sure, sure. So what tends to happen for people who are in, in a minority group at work is that they can be seen as representative of that group. So what sometimes happens is even, even though they're not, you know, you could be an engineer, a black engineer, but someone from marketing may come to you because they want to market to black people. And so now that you're an expert about marketing to black people, even though you're a software engineer, totally inappropriate. And you're one person and they shouldn't be coming to you. So it's, it's a, you know, that's just one example where they're, you know, the marketing person is, is trying to get a trusted informant, but really they should just be doing what they would normally do for any group. So why are they coming to this software engineer? So it's an insulting. Uh-huh. And disrespectful in many ways. So that's that's an example, but which people don't, you know, they didn't necessarily think. They even are not aware of it that it's exactly exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. So you talk about a lot of bias that we have. How can we overcome this bias? It's really challenging to overcome our bias. Biases are really just mental shortcuts, right? They're they're cognitive shortcuts, and we can't live in the world without biases, right? Biases are what help us decide if we see a book cover, you know, do we like the cover? And, you know, and that makes us want to learn more about the book. But what we can do is be aware of the ways that our biases are influencing us and then take steps to kind of counteract that. So we can't not have biases, Mm -hmm. right? Now, as we counteract our biases, they can actually then shift our biases, right? Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I know that when I'm hiring, so I'm a white woman, my bias, I have a more positive impression of white women when I'm interviewing. So if I know that, right, what that means is first, I, I should probably really want to try to you know, make sure that names and genders are not on people's resumes when I'm reading them, right? So I'm truly blind when I'm reading them. It's a good practice. But it also means that I need to do more work mentally when I'm looking at resumes, when I can see who's who, or when I'm interviewing, or even preparing to be interviewing someone, right? Of I, I know I'll tend to give a white woman benefit of the doubt, but not other people from other demographic groups. And so I have to work really hard. That's on me to work really hard to counterbalance that and to view, you know, really see what is each person bringing to the table and really like, so why should I have this bias towards white women, right? Like, where does that come from? And as I do that work and really work to give everyone an equitable shot, my bias may change over time, but it may not. And that's okay. As long as I'm sort of take doing the behaviors to counteract its effect. So, you know, when you're talking, I'm thinking about the fact that 
at the end of the day, it's the responsibility of each and every one of us to overcome his bias, right? By increasing our own self-awareness and by knowing ourselves and our automatic patterns and bias. And nobody can do it for ourselves because maybe you have another bias and I have another bias and, and I need to know what triggers me, what resonates within me, what is my biggest bias. And it's my own work to do it. The question is, how can you promote it in the workplace that not each and every one has his self-awareness and knows his bias and wants to know his bias? It's really challenging, no? What do you think? It is challenging. Just a, a word, the research is that training that only addresses unconscious bias is not particularly effective. Mm -hmm. And that's because it doesn't help people understand, well, what should I do instead? Right? So yes. I'm, I tend to focus on behavior because we know from a lot of research on, in various areas of psychology that when you change your behavior enough, right? Like when you just do it over and over, it becomes automatic and it changes your thoughts. Really what we're talking about is to develop DEI habits. Habits are automatic. You don't have to think about them a lot. Right. And so when you, let's say, you know, in team meetings, you really have, you're very inclusive in your behaviors. It just becomes automatic and you don't think about it. You know, how do I make people welcome here? How do I, you know, give everyone a voice? How do I make people feel valued? So self-awareness is good, right, to your point. But I also think that even for people who are not, have no desire to be particularly self-aware, uh -huh. that's okay because it's about changing your behavior. The saying goes, fake it till you make it. So you say, let's start with the behavior and then it will also change our attitude or assumptions, or maybe it won't change it. It only changed my behavior but not deeper. Right. So this, right. So that gets into whether it's really performative or not. You know, that's a term that's used a lot in, in the DEI space now, which is people kind of faking it. Um, but, but they're not faking it to make it. If that makes sense, they're just faking it to fake it. What does it mean faking it to fake it? Oh, because they're, they should, they don't want to, they don't want to, but people are watching. And so they only do it when those people are watching, so to speak, right? But then they don't do it when those people are not watching. And so you want people to be um, internally motivated, right? It's called intrinsic motivation for psychologists. So the idea is to help people want to do it because it's the right thing. I mean, there are many reasons why, but one is the right thing. And that has people faking it because whenever you're trying something new, whenever you try new behaviors, you're faking it, right? When you learn to drive, it's really, you're kind of faking it, right? Yeah. Uh, when you have a new job or, or, new, or new promotion, a new role, right? You're faking it in the beginning and you're motivated. And so you fake it long enough and you know what? It's not, you're not faking it anymore. Or if you get married, right? And so you, you know, you can do cute, wife thing or husband thing, you know, you little cute things and, and it doesn't really feel like you're married, but after a while it does, mm -hmm. you know, or you become a parent, you know, you don't know what you're doing. It's even if you thought you knew what you would be doing and you fake it. And then, so it's really is that same thing, but we want people motivated. And that's actually how we use VR was, is really to help that motivation. 
there are many ways to increase people's motivation. Storytelling in one form or another can be really powerful. In the U.S. after George Floyd was killed and Ahmaud Arbery, we found out about Breonna Taylor, many people really did want to learn more about what they should be doing differently. They were motivated because they saw something they hadn't seen before. They hadn't really realized change from a pleasure or from a pain. This situation, this painful situation increased the awareness, I think, and maybe made a movement towards changing this aspect and wanting to understand fully how we can impact. No, don't you think so? I do, but unfortunately, I think that many of the DEI initiatives that happened after that were kind of just the same. And again, we know from a lot of research that one-off trainings, whether whether it's a one-hour training or a, a day training, they don't work, right? Mm-hmm. Even when they're compelling, they don't work because you forget, right? The cues not are enough. Right? It's not enough. You really need what's called distributed learning or drip learning, which is small doses over time help hook in new learning into old learning. Because I don't know if you've had this experience. I certainly have. When I go to a conference, or at least in the old days, you know. Um, we went to a conference. <laughs> or even a very packed talk that at some point I can't take in any more information. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm maxed out. And so anything new just goes way over my head. And so you need information in, in sort of right-sized chunks, that over time that help you hook in that new learning into old learning. Yeah. And I, you know, I think unfortunately after the events of last spring, too many of the DEI initiatives were just variants of what had happened, the trainings that had happened before. I mean, I think people were very well-meaning, but they, they didn't sort of adhere to best principles about what we know works to Mm -hmm. train habits to train, to really help people move forward with DEI stuff. So it's unfortunate. So what would you advise to executive CEOs that are listening to us if they want to increase DEI in their workplace? What should they do? Well, of course, they should use our program, but because it's it's based on distributed and drip learning and sort of all the, the right things that we know from research. But to answer your question more directly, part of it is... It is top down. It comes from leadership. So we know, for instance, that when leaders talk about why DEI is important to them, that's very powerful. Why it's personally important to them, not just, I mean, business wise, actually the business case is great when it's actually implemented well, but why is it personally important and to keep those conversations going again, that's the distributed learning over time. So that's something leaders can do right there, you know, both from the CEO to leaders of divisions, you know, SVPs on down. Leaders can ask managers regularly, how is it going in terms of inclusion on your team? What can I do to support you? Right. So it's not, again, don't, don't ask once, ask regularly. People need specific guidelines. It's not enough to say you should act inclusively. It's like, what does that mean here, right? If you have a global team, what's inclusive 
it, you know, for one team is going to really differ from what's inclusive for another, depending on the makeup of the teams globally, because something that may be inclusive in the U.S. could be disrespectful to people, let's say, on, you know, where it's primarily or Japanese or Asian, right? So you, part of what, what needs to happen is each team or working group should have periodic conversations about what should we be doing, right? So everybody's on the same page and aligned. Yeah. The organization, of course, should have some examples of things. What does it mean for us? And enable them to create this meaning, right? Understanding. Exactly. And the beauty of that in a remote or hybrid workplace is the discussions really foster um, trust and belonging Mm -hmm. among people. It sort of becomes water cooler conversation. So even things like, should I give unsolicited feedback, right? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. Or, or about promptness, you know, the meaning of deadlines, right? Mm-hmm. Th- these are interesting conversations where people really learn about each other. And at some point, they need to come to consensus to create a guideline. But the conversation itself is really valuable as long as there are guardrails to make sure it's a respectful conversation. So I'm listening to you and it's really interesting because the way you offer to do it, it actually enables in inclusiveness because you're saying we should enable people to bring their complete self to the workplace and their uh, viewpoint and their experience. And then we enable in something much broader for people to be present and connect in a deeper level. You bring it through the DI, but I think it's even deeper than that because at the end of the day, now in the workplace, main challenge is to engage people, right? And how do you engage people? You engage them by offering them to be authentic, to bring themselves fully, to fulfill themselves, to feel meaningfulness. And it kind of goes together, what you're saying, the DEI and this. So Right, DEI, belonging, engagement, they they do. And then, you know, sort of how do you deal with hybrid and remote? Yeah. Um, I think it does all come together. And as long as the conversations are respectful. So I take issue with this concept of bring your whole self to work. I I understand the whole authenticity piece Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of having to behave as if, but I really like to say, bring your best self to work Mm -hmm. because if your authentic self is to yell at people and have a really hard time regulating your own frustration and anger, I actually don't want you to bring that to the workplace. That may be your authentic self, but that that really doesn't belong in the workplace. Wow, this is really interesting, you know, because I think I agree with you that people need to learn to be aware of their behaviors and to manage themselves. However, if I'm angry at a specific issue, I prefer that this employee or, or peer will talk about his anger. Otherwise, I will lose him. So I think this is, the main crucial challenge and element that we need to embrace nowadays is to learn mindfully how to bring ourselves fully in a way that other people can react to us and embrace it and not create antagonism. So if someone angry at me, I would have wanted him to say, you know, I'm really angry right now because I don't agree with you. Let's take time and exactly. It becomes conversation. Yeah, but I think we do want to invite people to show up fully. However, they need to learn how to manage themselves and talk their emotion. What you're saying, usually when we're angry, 
we act upon our emotion and then I'm started to shout at my colleague and you know it's unpleasant I think the challenge is to learn how to manage my emotion and to speak my emotions you know I'm angry right now and it's a new language I think that we don't know fully to use it in the western world and in the business world what do you think about it I, I mean I think it really is a, a challenge I think it used to be I wouldn't say okay but was tolerated and was considered by many to be acceptable you know because in fact many leaders were like that so it also starts at the top there it's fine to have disagreements it's fine to be angry it's really about how you convey that and there's a difference between good conflict and bad conflict mm-hmm. and conflict you know good conflict is great disagreement is great we will all inadvertently hurt each other we will say things that are disrespectful the so we learn by feedback right so it's it's if you're angry at me because of something I said or did yes it is helpful for you to tell me so that I can learn about you and that and as we work that through that creates trust right but it's not okay for you to go off on me mm-hmm. right and because all that happens is I'm going to try to avoid you in the future. I'm going to try to avoid working with you. I'm going to do my best to sort of not deal with you. I mean, it's, there's a huge cost. There are financials about the cost kind of incivility and disrespect in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And it's huge, right? So if you e- email me wanting something right away, I'm going to be passive aggressive because you yelled at me, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, oh, did you need that? By I'm sorry, I didn't see that email, <laughs> right? Um Yes, I agree with you. You know, it's a subtle line. I think this is what we need to learn nowadays. Because, you know, at the end of the day, our emotions that are connected to our heart, like compassion, passion, empathy, creativity, we need these traits. And we use to disconnect from them. And I think the challenge nowadays is to connect fully as human beings and to bring these traits and qualities within us, but to learn how to bring it without flooding us, without dropping our emotion on others. So I right. think this is the main challenge. This is the main uh, tools that will help us to increase inclusion in the workplace. Otherwise, if I play the game and I won't bring myself fully, I won't bring my added value. I won't be able to really bring different colors of me and create this engagement. This is what I think when you were speaking. I think communication is a crucial element. And as I said in my research, in my book, I called it the dialogue space. It's a central tool to right. create innovative organization because what does it mean by look spaces? Show up fully, be able to be in the uncertainty, bring your experience. You don't need to agree with me. You can bring a different viewpoint, different feeling about it, something that it's not close right now. We don't know the answer. It's okay not to know. It's okay not to, to agree, to disagree. So I think as leaders, we need to enable this space in order really for inclusion and diversity to be present. And it's really challenging. I don't think, you know, we can speak about it, but being there, authentic, vulnerable, it's challenging. It is challenging. And that's the whole thing about making people motivated, right? It Because it is challenging and we want people to do it over time and keep practicing. And sometimes we'll get it wrong. And sometimes when other people get it wrong, we need to give them grace when we know that they're trying, right? That's not giving people a free pass. I'm not saying that, but you recognize, you know, even with the people we love the most and know the best, we will get it wrong. 
And so how do we navigate that, right? That's the conversation part. Mm -hmm. And that does create trust. And again, in a hybrid or remote workplace, you know, how do we feel close to and want to work with the people who are our colleagues and partners? And it is, it's a challenge. (laughs) Human beings are a challenge. So from your experience, what is the right thing to do in the hybrid workplace in the, when we are working remotely and we don't see each other, how we can increase this trust and engagement? So hybrid is a really interesting issue for uh, inequity because you have the in-office people and the out of out the not in-office people. One of the things we know is wherever the leader is is where the power center is, and so. One of the recommendations is for leaders, if you're in a hybrid group, is leaders should not be in office all the time or perhaps even much of the time. Leaders can mean anything. It's not just a CEO. It's, you know, anyone who's leading a working group. The opportunity for inequity, it's it's sort of weird because on the one hand, what's happening anecdotally is that it's the young people who are going into the office because they don't have great home work environments. And so that's, that's an equity issue. Right. And so it's the, the people who are higher levels in management who have spaces that are conducive to working. And so then what does that mean? Are you creating a, a sort of version of a ghetto as in office and, you know, not in remote people are the power center. And so I, I think part of the solution is really being mindful about equity issues. I mean, there's the no brainer, which is when there are team meetings everyone should be on their own laptop and you shouldn't have people, some people in a conference room and on one screen and other people. Yes, it's amazing. It's really, really power relation, right? One of my clients wanted me to facilitate a workshop when there are somewhere, a group in Atlanta, some group in another place, and I'm from my uh, computer. And I said, no, it doesn't feel right. It needs to be equal. To right, be- so, so everyone, you know, one laptop per or one computer per respondent. But then what happens is the people who are in office feel like, well, why am I here? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if they're there for collaborative purposes. So it it really is being thoughtful about who's in the office, why and when. Right. So collaboration has been the real stickler for remote work. That is, it's just not as good as well as trust and, and all those things. And so it's really people being very thoughtful about in office, out of office, people who've been hired, who can't come in office, they don't live nearby, right? Or even an hour or two away, they have to fly in. And and how do you create a sense of teamness? The other thing to note is when we're in an office, we have what I call micro interactions. These little tiny, they could be a few seconds long, they could be a minute long, they may be at the elevator or the coffee area or just walking by your desk and we, you know, see each other and that's it. And we smile, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't have that anymore. And every interaction is, is planned, yeah. right? I have to email you. Every visual interaction is planned, right? We, we have to set up a time to meet. I can't just, well, there are actually services and devices that allow that, but in general, we don't have micro interactions anymore. And that is the glue that binds people together. So if you and I were at a team meeting, we disagree. And we, we both had strong feelings about it. 
one or the other of us could go after the meeting and chat about the weather. I could ask about your kids. You could ask me about something and it would be making nice, mm-hmm. right? That it would smooth things over and sort of resume our normal relationship. It's like when teams shake hand after a game, yeah. right? That And so we don't have that now. We don't have where I can literally just walk by your desk and smile at you mm-hmm. and make a pair if I did something, or I can just see your face and how you look at me as I walk by and know, you know, that you seem really uptight and I can say, Hey, everything. Okay. You know, what's that? We don't have that opportunity anymore. And that is a problem. I mean, the, those little micro action, micro interactions that are glue yeah. are part of what make being in the office worthwhile. But as I say, there are companies, there's one like Sidekick, another one is called Tandem, where you have a device that's next to your, sitting next to your computer that has video or, or just, you know, sort of photos of slow, it taken every minute or something over time of your teammates or your partner, business partners or whatever the group is. Mm-hmm. So you can see each other and tap each other for those quick little micro interactions. I actually think it's really cool. And there's some great data about it, it trying to recreate that presence in person. I know that there are a few companies that also have a coffee meeting, you know, opening the Zoom and connecting for coffee. Right. So there are ways to overcome the challenges. We need to learn it because it looks like it's going to stay at a hybrid structure. Yeah, yeah. or fully remote. Is there any question that I should ask you, but I haven't? No, I, I think you did a really great job. Thank you for asking. Robin, if um, people want to contact you, how can they reach you before we wrap up? I want they can to- go to our website, liveintheirworld.com and just click contact us. I'm on LinkedIn. Just look up Robin Rosenberg, psychologist or live in their world is on LinkedIn. Live in their world is on Twitter as live. And then the letter N their world. That's our handle. And yeah, so people can reach out. We always have some kind of free download. Mm -hmm. So it's usually on the homepage and also on our publications page that's on our thought leadership sort of overview. So I I think it currently is an ebook on the psychological underpinnings of of inclusion as a habit, but we always have something. Great. Sounds amazing. And uh, Robin, thank you for your great work. Continue. It's needed in the world. Thank Thank you you for your work as well and for having me. It's been delightful. Thank you for joining. I really had a great time. This was Dr. Robin Rosenberg. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. You're invited to subscribe to our podcast in order to know when we upload a new episode and follow us on social media. Thank you for listening and till next time, take care and bye-bye.